in your hands your copies of God's holy and errant and inspired word. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Where today we'll be studying the, uh, the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus Christ by the angel Gabriel in verses 26 through 38. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. Hear now the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who, is, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This ends the reading of God's inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Um, one of my favorite things about the Christmas season is at the end of a long work day on a cold winter's night, after we've had chili, soup, something warm and cozy, me and my family, we go, we sit on the couch, we fire up the old Roku TV, turn on some type of Christmas movie. Old ones, new ones, good ones, bad ones. We don't really care. As long as it's got a Christmas tree in it somewhere, we count it. One of my favorite films, one of my favorite Christmas stories is the famous Charles Dickens tale of A Christmas Carol. And this, this is what I want you to, 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 to think about. I want, to think, I want you to think about a, a very famous scene in that book or the movie, however you have taken in the story. Um, the scene that is said is of Ebenezer Scrooge sitting in his room, eating a bowl of stew, and when the ghost of his dead business partner, uh, Jacob Marley, if I call him Bob Marley, I'm sorry, Jacob Marley comes to him covered in chains and begins to speak to him. And as, as Jacob is speaking to Scrooge, he notices that Scrooge is having a hard time but not just believing what he is saying, but even believing that he is real. And so Jacob Marley looks down at Scrooge and he says, you don't believe in me. Do you not trust your senses? And then uh, Scrooge responds by saying, well, the senses are a, they're a fickle thing. Any little thing can make them a, a cheat. You could just be a, a, a blot of mustard, a bit of underdone potato. There's, there's more gravy than grave about you, humbug. And then Jacob Marley stands up and he shakes terribly his chains and he begins to scream and this scare screws to death and he runs and he hides behind his chair. But then Jacob Marley 
calls Scrooge something. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. Now, in a lot of the movies, it's hard to understand what he says, but in the book, it's quite clear. Jacob Marley says, man of the world, do you believe in me or not? Man of the world. What does Marley mean? by man of the world. I think this is what he means. Uh, the man of the world is the materialistic man, the natural man. We live in a world that is material, made up of, of stuff, and whenever the, the man of the world comes across something that's difficult to explain, even something that seems to be supernatural, the first thing that we do is we begin to think of just natural reasons that it has, that it has come about. For Scrooge, it was, it was the underdone potato. It was the uncooked food. It was, a, it was a bout of indigestion that was causing this apparition. And we do the same thing today, and it's not necessarily all bad. We can't go through life thinking that every noise that goes bump in the night is some type of spirit or ghoul or something like that. No, most of the things that happen, 99.9999% of the things, are natural in nature. But the problem that I see with the modern concept of the man in the world is the belief that it is a modern thing. It is a product of the scientific revolution. That in the ancient world, you had a bunch of dullards and dolts who believed in any kind of superstitious thing. Everything was superstitious. Everything was supernatural. This way of thinking comes from a Scottish philosopher by the name of David Hume, who rejected Christianity on one very simple basis. Miracles don't happen. And the Bible is full of miracles. Therefore, they didn't happen. Christianity is false because it is a miraculous religion. Well, David Hume is wrong. David Hume was not the first man of the world. We are not the first men and women of the world. There were men of the world and women of the world in the, in the story that we just read. Take Joseph, for example. Mary comes to him. He sees that she is with child he knows it isn't his. Does he buy the excuse that the angel came to him, that she conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to give birth to the Son of God? No. He did the same thing we would say if that took place. He seeks to quietly divorce her because she's been unfaithful to, her, to him. It's not until the angel comes to him in a dream that he comes back to her. Even Mary herself, there in verse 34, the angel comes and says, you are going to conceive of the Holy Spirit. And what does is, what is Mary say? How? How in the world is that going to happen? I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have babies. She was a woman of the world. The people around Mary and Joseph were the same thing. I mean, I mean think about this. Could you imagine the things that Mary's neighbors were saying about her? As she's walking around, becoming more and more and more visibly pregnant. Could you imagine, imagine the names that she was being constantly called by her neighbors? The men of the world. Think of Joseph as well. You see him walking through the streets with his wife and the, and the little boy, Jesus. And people looking at them and saying, look at that poor adult who got tricked into raising another man's child. You know why they would say that? Because virgins don't have babies. Virgins do not conceive. This is even something that Jesus himself would have to deal with 
in regards to the virgin birth. In John chapter 8, there's a story of Jesus having a conversation with a group of Pharisees. And, and Jesus asked them a question, who is your father? And they answer like any good Jew. They say, well, our father is Abraham. And Jesus kind of pumps the brakes a little bit and says, well, wait, if you were the children of Abraham, you would be doing the work of Abraham who rejoiced to see my day, and you're not rejoicing. And the Pharisees retort with, I think, was quite, quite clearly a, a slide against uh, a Mary and the birth of Jesus. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We know who our father is. Our father is even God. Do you see what they're saying there? They say, we've heard the story of your mother. We've heard the story of Mary and the so-called virgin birth. Likely, likely story that is. We were not born of sexual immorality. They're accusing Jesus of being born of sexual immorality. But it's not just Joseph who has to put up with this. It's not just Mary that has to put up with this. It's not just Jesus who has to put up with this. It's we ourselves who have to put up with this. We are a people whose faith is deeply rooted in the miraculous. We believe that 2,000 years ago, a man who performed miracles, a man who gave life from the dead, a man who healed the sick, the people with withered hands, paralysis, lepers, and the like. We believe that he rose from the dead. Dead men don't, ra dead men don't rise, and virgins don't give birth. It would be easy at this moment to say, God, did you, did you, did you have to give us a, another miracle to have to de defend? I mean, don't, don't we have enough to defend? I mean, isn't the world against us enough because of all these miracles? And then he give us the virgin birth. Wouldn't it have been easier, God, if you had just found a, a, a righteous man out there somewhere and just adopted him to be your son? Wouldn't that have been I mean, just one, le one less miracle that we have to put up with, that we, have to, that we have to explain today? The answer is no. God could not have done that. You know why? Because God wanted to save his people. And if he had adopted to some Joe Schmo, it would not have worked. God cannot save us through a, a mere man who is only somewhat righteous. He needs to save man through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes about one way and one way only, the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not just some heady miracle thing that we had to work around our faith and our salvation are founded upon the doctrine of the virgin birth. We just spoke about it in the Apostles' Creed. Conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. This is part and parcel to what we believe. Apart from the virgin birth, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. There is no justification. There is no righteousness. There is no eternal life. There is no hope. We are dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. The virgin birth is a significant event. Significant. And this morning, I want to give you two reasons why it is significant, not only for our faith, but also for our salvation. First, I want us to see the prophetic significance of the virgin birth as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then secondly, I want us to see the salvific significance of the virgin birth as it has to do with our salvation from our sins. Let's begin by looking at the prophetic significance of the virgin birth. The Old Testament 
in the Old Testament, God was seemingly never without a voice. He spoke to his people. Oftentimes when people would go into temple or a synagogue, they would hear the voice of God as a rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee would stand up and would begin to, to, to preach the word of God from one of the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Perhaps maybe it would be a teaching from one of the historical books showing, showing God's mighty works of redemption through the history of his people. Perhaps it would have been through the singing of, of psalms from, from God's inspired hymn book, the book of psalms written by David, the sons of Korah and the like. The word of God was around his people. They were surrounded by it. They were hearers of the word. But it wasn't just in the words of the book. You see, in the Old Testament, you also had the prophets who would speak the word of God and in some cases even write the word of God in people's unique present circumstances. It wasn't a look back. It was a look into the present and wondering, why is this going on? What does God think about what is happening right now? And then where we were headed in the future. But there's a problem with that. The circumstances in which the prophets often spoke were not good circumstances. Whenever a prophet would come up on the scene, the people of Israel would most likely roll their eyes and say, not this again. There's a reason for this. The prophets were, in a sense, lawyers. They were prosecutors. Whenever a prophet came up, it was to prosecute God's covenant lawsuit against his people. When the prophet showed up, it's because they had broken covenant. They had broken faithfulness. They had broken his law. They had forsaken widows and orphans. They had given their, their sons and daughters to false gods. They had given their worship to these false gods. And now they were coming under judgment. And so when a prophet would rise up, he came with oracles of woe. Prophets are hard to read. They would have been even harder to listen to. But they didn't just come with words of woe. They also come with words of salvation, usually interwoven in the fabric of their prophecies. There was always a short-term salvation where they would come and say, yes, you are going to be led out of your land, away from your homes, torn away from your families, and be brought into a foreign nation like Babylon or Assyria or Greece or something like that. But God is going to save you. He's going to bring you out of that exile. He's going to bring you back home. He's going to plant you once again in Jerusalem and Judea and here in the promised land. But then if you keep looking, on the horizon of this hope, there's an even more distant future and more wonderful hope, the hope of the new creation. And this is the desire of every Israelite's heart. And this is the desire of our hope to reclaim what was lost in paradise by the sin of our first father Adam we all desire to come home it's like the 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 famous Christmas song I'll be home for Christmas it's uh it's one of my favorites but it's sad it's lonely have, have you ever celebrated Christmas away from family away from home kind of by yourself I've, I've been blessed. I've never had to celebrate Christmas without family and friends. But I have had to celebrate a few Thanksgivings away from people by myself sitting in an apartment. And it's fine for a while. 
But usually, sometime in the middle of um, the Dallas Cowboys game, around 3 or 4 o'clock, as I'm sitting there saying a lot of stuff I shouldn't be saying to the TV, I look around and I realize I'm shouting all this stuff to a room full of nothing. <laughs> it's just me. And at that moment, I usually start missing my mom, and I miss my dad, and I miss my, my family, and I miss my friends. I miss the, miss the food and the fellowship. All of a sudden, I become a little bit homesick. We're all homesick. We look at the sufferings of the world. We look at the loss of loved ones. We, we look at maybe being discontent with our, with our jobs or, or maybe even our families and our relationships with others. And we think, what's going on? It's, it's, it's a homesickness. Well, on the horizon of these prophecies, we see home. It's distant, but it's coming. And the people are waiting on this, this new creation. I want to I show you what this looks like in the prophets. Turn with me to the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I want, I want to read for you verses 6 through 10. And as, as we're reading and as we're listening to this, I want you to pay attention to two, for, look for two things. I want you to look for the image of the garden of Eden. But this is not the past garden. This is a future garden. So look for the look for the, the language of paradise. But then I also want you to look for the language of the one who brings this paradise. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters over the sea. Did you hear that? Did you also hear how it's a better Eden? It's not, this is not just a little place between some rivers in Mesopotamia. This is the whole earth is covered with the knowledge of God. There is no sin. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's none of that. It's home. Home is coming. But listen in verse 10 to how it's coming. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. His resting place shall be glorious. Who is this root of Jesse? Jesse, as many of you know, is the father of King David. This is a king. This is someone from the kingly line, the messianic lineage of David. But here's the problem. By the time Isaiah writes this, and even as we go into the future, there have been many kings from the line of David. And I'm sorry to say, they never quite live up to the expectations of these prophecies, do they? They all fall short, even the best of them. Solomon, the wisest of them all, the richest, the most powerful of them all, he dies more pagan than he is Jewish. He's a letdown. He doesn't live up to Isaiah's expectations. Fast forward to the last of the line of David. It gets really very much attention in the Old Testament. Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra. 
He sounds like the guy. He sounds like the root of Jesse who will make all things new. He leads the people of Israel out of exile from Babylon and he brings them back to the holy city of Jerusalem and he begins to rebuild the city. And not just the city, he rebuilds the temple and you're thinking, this is the guy. But then you look at his work. Rather than unifying Israel, he tears them apart. He sows the seeds of discord. He puts father against son and son against father. He tears the people apart from each other. Then later in the book, at the very end of it, he puts out this strange divorce decree. Now he's tearing mothers and children away from their fathers and fathers away from their children. And he's sending them back into Babylon, which for many would have been a a death sentence. It's something that Malachi, the prophet, actually prophesies against in Malachi chapter 2. He's not living up to the expectations. And even the temple doesn't live up to the expectations. He, he rebuilds the temple. It is, it, is, um, it, is, it is set, it is built, it's time to start worshiping in it. And everybody's excited about this. Everybody's happy, except for a group of old timers over here on the side. And they're, they're weeping. You know why they're weeping? Because not only does it not match the new creation glory, it doesn't even match the glory of the temple of Solomon that was destroyed by the Babylonians. They are weeping. They don't live up to these expectations. But Isaiah is gracious to us here. He gives us a sign that will accompany this root of Jesse. The reason that Solomon and Zerubbabel can't hold up to the expectations is because this is not the root of Jesse that we are looking for. If you want to see the root of Jesse, turn back to me to Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Isaiah writes, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Turn over now to a couple of pages to Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You're not looking for an ordinary man. You are looking for the God-man. Even David himself could not take upon himself the name Emmanuel. God with us, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. David himself falls short of the expectations of Isaiah. It is the one who is born of a virgin, who is worthy to be called mighty God, everlasting Father, Emmanuel, God with us. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ who we, who we have just read about. The one who was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Most High God who overshadowed her womb and created from nothing his son's human nature so that his son might make an atonement for the sins of his people. This is the root of Jesse that we have been looking for. He is the one, the only one, 
who is worthy to call us into the new creation. Now, you might be asking that question. I'm looking around. I don't see much new creation. I don't, I don't, I mean, there's still suffering. There's still death. There's still sickness. Where's this new creation? Look right there. Look right there. Dead men do not believe. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, the old has died. The new has come. Yes, one day Christ will return and all of this will be made new. But you are the first fruits. You are the beginnings of it. Yes, you, one day you will be raised from the dead bodily. But right now you are raised in your mortal bodies. You have been given life from the dead. You are a new creation through the Emmanuel who has truly, truly saved you. This is what the prophets were speaking of. The making of all things new. People from every tongue and tribe and nation coming together and worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's you. You are the new creation awaiting for its fulfillment. But I want to now draw your attention to the, the, the last point that I want to talk about. The salvific significance of this. See, the prophets pointed to Jesus coming, coming to save. But how does the virgin birth, how does it, how does it, how does it work with our salvation? How, why is it necessary for our salvation? This is not just some heady doctrine. It directly deals with our forgiveness and with our salvation. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that Christ Jesus was made a greater high priest. Because he was able to sympathize with us in every way. Being tempted like us in every way. Yet without sin. Last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 7. And how he, in order for him to atone for the sins of man. He had to be, become fully human. Fully man. But there's a difference between him and us. But one only, yet without sin. How is that possible? Are we not by nature children of wrath, following after the prince of the power of the air? Are we not by nature dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses? Are we not like the psalmist who was conceived in iniquity? Was Jesus conceived in iniquity? Was, was, was he by nature a child of wrath? Here's the thing. He was made like us in every way. But Jesus and me and you, we do not have the same father. My father is Adam. I pass on the sins of my father to my children. I look at, I look at Mac and Marlo and I, I see myself in, in, in both of them. Mac, you look at a baby picture of me, it's, it's Mac, just made over. You look at Marlo, Marlo looks a lot like, like Hillary, but she has a very Robinson-shaped head. They, they look like their father. Think of sin, original sin, as being almost like a gene that is passed on from father to son to son to son to son. It passes on through the lineage of Adam. They don't just look like me in their physical characteristics. They look, at, look like me in their sin. Even Mac, just three years old, He's already lying. And by the grace of God, he's not very good at it. He, he, he thinks it's funny. Whenever he starts laughing, you're like, well, he's lying about it. But he's a sinner because he's his father's child. And I'm my father's 
child. But Jesus, his father is not Adam. Adam was created from the inanimate dirt of creation. Jesus was created from the womb of the Virgin Mary. His father is God. He is born without sin, untouched and untarnished. He is the better and perfect Adam. Because he was born of a virgin, Jesus Christ is righteous when we are not. This righteousness was not for, but this righteousness that he accomplishes is not for himself alone. It's for you and it is for me. Jesus was born without sin so that he might become the spotless lamb of God. This makes him able to take away sin entirely. The high priest had to go into the temple and make sacrifices of animals. You know why? Because he he couldn't make a sacrifice himself. Because he needed the blood of bulls and goats just as much as the people of Israel. But Jesus does not require a sacrifice. He does not require atonement. Therefore, he is uniquely qualified to take upon himself your sins. His righteousness makes him a blank canvas upon which God can paint his wrath and his judgment for his people. He becomes our sacrifice because he was born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. And also because Jesus was born of a virgin, born without sin, he is able to make us perfect before God. You see, forgiveness is not enough. If all God did was forgive you and me of our sins, we're all in really, really bad shape. That makes you a zero. You are an image bearer of God. God requires a perfect mirror who perfectly reflects his glories, perfectly reflects everything about him, his own righteousness, his own holiness. But what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was righteous for us. This is what Luther called the great exchange. He took my sin and in its place, he established his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is mine. My sin is his. And behold, I am forgiven. And you are forgiven. But without the virgin birth, That does not happen. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be justified before God. We cannot be forgiven. We can have no part of salvation if Christ is not born of a virgin. If we lose the virgin birth of Christ, if we hide the doctrine away from the critical eyes of the world, we do them no good and we do ourselves no good. For apart from this, there is no salvation. Christ came to take away sins. He had to be born of a virgin. And so Christmas is a time for sharing peace and joy and comfort with the the world and our neighbors. But it is also a time to share it boldly. Do not hide the miracle. Do not be ashamed of the miracle. For it is through that miracle that Jesus Christ 
became known as Emmanuel, God with us, mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. We are a people of miracles. Do not hide the light. Do not hide the miracle. Believe and show it. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us of our sins and trespasses. They are many. But forgive us of our shame. As, Bob, as, as Jacob Marley has said, we are men of the world. But Father, make us men and women of grace. Make us men and women who believe that, that our God is not a slave to the laws of nature. Yes, he works in nature. Yes, he works through ordinary means. But you are a God who are far above them. And Father, we are not ashamed of your power. For Father, it was through your power, it's through your mighty works, that salvation has come to wretched sinners such as ourselves. So, Father, hear your children this morning. Forgive us of our sins and embolden us in the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now let us stand together.